<coughs> Sorry. Our summer reading for the next couple months engages us in the story of King David's life with God. And David's is an extraordinary life. If there, if there was ever a Bible hero, someone that we could call a Bible hero, David is that hero. His stories and his songs captivate our imaginations. We just sang a rewrite of one of his songs. But David's story is, is also it's a very human story. It's one which resonates within each of us. The last several weeks, we've heard about David's humble beginnings, these really normal gifts that God is going to utilize to further his kingdom. And in that, there's a little, uh, a little flag for us that says, all those normal things that we do with most of our days, most of our hours, most of our moments, matters and can be used by God. Over the remainder of the summer, we'll see how David continues to, to deal in work, in prayer, prayer and work, to deal in lust, in sin, in vulnerability, and in instability, things that we've all encountered or maybe we're right in the middle of this morning. The David story is simultaneously a, a really earthly and a really godly story. This past year, uh, year or so, there's less than a year, there's been uh, several deaths of transcendent, larger-than-life characters, personalities. I'm thinking David Bowie and Prince and Muhammad Ali, to name a few. I found, uh, I found the reactions, my reaction and also the, the wider reactions to these deaths, really interesting. Especially Bowie and Prince uh, related to their, their art and this persona. And then Ali, of course, uh, related to his sheer physicality, his, his force, his personality, his volume. That, that, that these, these characters live these really humanly, fleshly, corporeal lives, and we admire them for it. We admire them in their lives and in their deaths. Each has though has been memorialized in these like transcendent, supernatural ways. These guys were larger than life. This, trying to hold those things together, the earthly and the, the, the almost divine, seems, seems it's, almost, it's almost Christological in, in what we're trying to do there. We're trying to hold together these things that don't want to be together because they're too big for us body and spirit, humanity and divinity. It's like, it frustrates us. It's like trying to, to mix oil and water to hold two positive ends of the magnet together. And of course, this, this is the Jesus story too. Most of, most of the life of the church has been spent trying to figure out this theological conundrum, this God-man that we worship, 100% man and 100% God. And of course, that math doesn't add up. There seems to be a category error when we're talking about Jesus. We, we, we don't seem to be able to recognize Jesus when he, he does show up because we, we just don't know what we're looking for. We, when we've beheld the image of the invisible God, it just seems too big for us. 
But we also, we look for that, we hope for that. We want it so badly that we, we start using that language to talk about mere mortals. Amazing human beings, but mere mortals nonetheless. That they seem like their lives loomed larger, that they were somehow more human. And I think we make that same mistake with David a lot. Forgetting just how normal in appearance and upbringing David actually is. If we remember a couple weeks ago, he was the runt little brother of a pretty average suburban Judean family. His shepherding is probably like the equivalent resume builder of being like a YMCA summer, summer lifeguard, you know? They just, just watching, just getting a tan, just hanging. And there's no miracles in the David story. Just a life laid wide open before God, relying on God, conversant with God. The art that David makes is God art. It's, it's pre-Christian art, but it's God art. And his life is, is aimed at God's own heart. Then we come to a story like today's story, and I'll invite Joey up. This David, David's encounter with Goliath, and it seems so outlandish, so impossible that we, we're tempted, if we're not careful, to read some sort of super heroic thing into David. Like he's, a, he's got a superpower that, like he's kind of this small nerdy guy that has a superpower like Spider-Man, you know? Or, or maybe he's just got really good gear like Batman, you know? Like it... Um, but I don't think the story is meant to be read that way. So get comfortable and try to listen with new ears um, and try to hear the details, the direction of this amazing story of, of vi the victory of God. All right. Settle in. We got 51 verses, people. <laughs> but it flies by. <clears throat> The Philistines assembled their troops for war at Soko, Soko of Judah. They camped between Soko and Ezekah at the Ephes Demim. Saul and the Israelite army assembled and camped in the Elah Valley where they got organized to fight the Philistines. The Philistines took positions on one hill and Israel took positions on the opposite hill. And there was a valley between them. A champion of the Philistines' camp stepped forward. Goliath of Gath, nine and a half feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and a bronze scale armor on his chest, 125 pounds. Bronze plates on his shins and, and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulder blades. His spear was like a weaver's beam, and the iron head itself weighed 15 pounds. And his shield bearer walked in front of him. The Philistines stopped and shouted at Israel's troops, Why should you come out in battle formation? I am the Philistine champion, and you are Saul's servants, are you not? Pick one of your men and let him come down against me. If he bests me and, kill, and kills me, we will become your slaves. But if I overcome him and kill him, then you will become our slaves and you will serve us. The Philistine continued, I defy the ranks of Israel. Get me a man and we'll fight this out. When Saul and all Israel heard this, they were dismayed and terrified. 
David now was a son of a certain Ephraimite of Bethlehem in Judah, a man named Jesse. He had eight sons. And by Saul's time, Jesse was already an old man. Three of his sons now had gone with Saul to war. Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, the next, and Shammah, the third son. And David was the youngest. The three eldest sons followed Saul, but David went back and forth from attending on attending to Saul to shepherding his father's flocks in Bethlehem. For 40 days straight, the Philistine came out and took his stand both morning and night. It came to pass that Jesse said to his son David, Take your brothers an ephah of cornmeal and ten loaves of bread. Deliver them quickly to your brothers in camp. And here, take these ten wedges of cheese to their commander. Find out how they're doing and Bring back some token or sign that they're all right. Saul Saul and the brothers and all of Israel were the, in the Eli Valley, remember, and at war with the Philistines. So David, David got up early. He left someone in charge of his flock and loaded up and left just like his father instructed. And when he reached the camp, just as the army, and he reached camp just as the army was taking their battle lines and shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines took up the battle lines opposite each other. David left his things with an attendant, and he ran to the front line, asking after his, after his brothers. And while he was speaking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came forward from the Philistine ranks and said again what he had said before. David listened. When the Israelites saw Goliath, every one of them ran away terrified. Now the Israelite soldiers had been saying to each other, do you see this guy? How he comes to insult Israel? The, I heard the king will reward whoever kills this guy with riches. The king will give even his own daughter to him and make his house exempt from taxes. <laughs> David asked the soldiers standing by, what will be done for the person who kills that Philistine over there and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is that uncircumcised Philistine anyway that he dares defy the army of the living God? The troops repeated what they'd been saying would be done for the man who killed him. Now, when David's older brother, Eliab, heard him talking to the soldiers, he was ticked. Why did you come down here? Who's watching those few sheep in the wilderness for you? I know how arrogant and devious you are. You came down just so you could see the battle. But David replied, what have I done now? I was just a question. So David turned to someone else and asked the same thing. And the people said the same thing in reply. The things David said were overheard and reported to Saul, who sent for him. Don't let anyone lose courage because of this Philistine, David told Saul. I, your servant, will go out and fight. You can't go out and fight this Philistine, Saul answered. You're a boy. And this warrior, he's been a soldier ever since he was a boy. Your servant has kept his father's sheep, David replied. And whenever a lion or a bear carried off one of the flock, I'd go after it. I'd strike it, and I'd rescue the animal from its mouth. And if the beast turned on me, I'd grab it by the jaw, strike it, and kill it. Your servant has fought lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them, because he has insulted the, he has insulted the army of the living God. The Lord, David added, who rescued me from the mouth of lion and bear will rescue me from this Philistine. 
go. Saul said, and may the Lord be with you. <laughs> then Saul dressed David in his own gear and put on a coat of armor. A, he put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David strapped his sword on over his armor, but he couldn't even walk because he wasn't used to it. I can't walk in this, David told Saul. I'm not used to wearing this stuff. So he took it off. Then he grabbed his staff and he chose five smooth stones from a creek bed. He put them in the pocket of his shepherd's bag and with sling in hand, he went out to the Philistine. The Philistine, meanwhile, was coming closer and closer to David, preceded by his shield bearer. And when the Philistine caught sight of David, he scorned him because he was just a boy, ruddy and handsome. And the Philistine cried out, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And he cursed him by his gods. And he said to David, Come here, and I'll feed your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. David replied to the Philistine, You're coming against me with sword, spear, and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel's army, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. I will kill you, and I cut off your head. Today I will feed your dead body and the dead body of all the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. And all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will hand you over to us. The Philistine got up and moved closer to attack David. And David ran to the front line to face him. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it. It struck the Philistine in the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. Thus David triumphed over the Philistine. With a sling and a stone, he struck him down and killed him. David had no sword. Then David ran up and stood over the Philistine, grabbed his sword, drew it from the sheath, and finished him. He cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they ran. Thanks, Joe. I especially appreciate the Hebrew translation of his brothers were ticked. Or, uh, yeah. <clears throat> Sometimes it's really hard to read stories we know so well. We remember the ways they, they morph around in our minds, but we forget the actual details. Reading the story of David and Goliath, I think, has that problem. David and Goliath has become this, this meme, this cultural language to just root for the underdog, right? It's, it's a Cinderella story. It's the, like a March Madness bracket buster, you know? But let's not lose the real story, just a few observations. David got into this fight, not because the Philistines, not just because the Philistines represented enslavement and oppression for Israel. They surely were that. They'd surely rape and pillage and plunder and enslave and utterly derail God's plan to enact healing and blessing, worship, and witness through a chosen people. But David was in the fight in the first place 
because of the things coming out of Goliath's mouth. The very idea that Goliath might insult the army of the living God. That someone was claiming authority over the author. It's not only blasphemy, but it's idolatry. Idols have to get knocked over. If anything, just so that that we can all see that they don't get back up. The, knocking over an idol, unmask it. David writes all these psalms about how idols don't have ears and eyes and mouth. They can't do anything. It, the, the, they get exposed. Like when you knock over an inflatable like punching doll dummy, it's a phony. It just stays down and doesn't even pop back up despite all the bluster and all the gravitational pull these idols have on us. The other thing I notice is that David volunteers to be Israel's champion. Maybe that's only fitting. Maybe it's fitting that the runny last child of an anonymous family who at this point had been kind of covertly anointed, uh, anointed to be their king, that that guy, that John Doe guy would be Israel's representative. After all, Israel's own start is laughable. Let's not forget that Sarah LOL'd when the angel told her that she would have a kid, right? (laughs) To complete the irony and the strangeness of this story, David refuses Saul's armor. Why would you do that? You've heard the expression warning about going into a gunfight with a knife? Like, how about going into a sword fight with a slingshot, right? David's reasoning, though, was not strategic. The Lord had equipped him. The Lord had protected him before against bears and lions. I can't help but think of the Revenant fight when when we talk about I don't think it was that dramatic. I, I really don't. The God who was faithful in David's small works will be faithful in this great and seemingly insurmountable work. I think that was true for David, and I, I actually do think that's true for us. It's only in stripping away the, the armor that doesn't fit him. This is Saul's armor. It was armor meant for a fight between two giants. Remember that detail about Saul, that he was head and shoulders above everyone? Saul's not a real giant, but for all intents and purposes, his armor was gigantic for David. It's that armor that, that David knew would hinder him. David's path to victory on behalf of God's family would only come through vulnerability. It would only come through risk. It would only come through trust in the Lord. David would fight this fight quite differently. Imagine the sort of courage and faith it must have taken. It's one thing to refuse to play by your enemy's rules. You don't really owe your enemy anything. Like You only play by their rules because you think that's the only way to play or the only way you can win. But 
David, in refusing to play by Goliath's rules, does in some way kind of reflect this conviction that, that Dr. Martin Luther King um, put as darkness can't drive out darkness, only light can do that. You need to change the game. You need to change the rules of engagement. So that's one thing. That's one bit of bravery. But it's a whole different sort of bravery or boldness or maybe even stupidity to turn to the king, to turn to your boss and your mentor, to turn to the boss and say, thanks, but no thanks. I can't walk in this, David told Saul, because I've never tried it before. I can't walk in that sort of protection or that sort of armor because it's so foreign to me that rather than protect me, it's going to get me killed. And the third thing I notice about this story, I was surprised at how mysteriously, how providentially, this David story previews Jesus' own story. Jesus' life walks in and fulfills this pattern of his great, 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 however many grandfather. This relatively obscure man from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, would ply his trade for 30 some odd years before launching into the vocation of leading God's people. In Jesus, if you read the Gospel of Luke, we find this newly spirit-anointed but not yet enthroned king, the representative of God's people doing what they wouldn't, what they couldn't, their champion, going toe-to-toe with one who would not only threaten God's mission in this world through his people, but the one who would demean, who would distort the very words of God. Whereas the Saul-led army of Israel stood at a precipice on a 40-day stalemate, lobbing insults and kind of cowering when they reverberated back across the canyon, with colossal forces of the Philistines, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days of hunger, of temptation, of reliance on the Lord to hold him up against the Goliath-like forces of the accusing Satan. In Luke 4, we get the picture of some of what Jesus was up against. The devil said to him, Since you are God's son, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus replied, It is written, People won't live only by bread. Next, the devil led him to a high place and showed him in a single instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said, I will give you this whole domain in all all the glory of all these kingdoms. It's been entrusted to me and I can give it to anyone I want. Therefore, if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it's written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. The devil then brought him into Jerusalem and stood him at the highest point in the temple. He said to him, since you're God's son, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you and they will take you up in their hands and you won't hit your foot on a stone. Jesus answered, it's been said, don't test the Lord your God. After finishing every temptation, the devil departed from him until the next opportunity. Eugene Peterson comments on this 
And he says, Jesus is, well, strange. Jesus is strange. He refuses to manipulate people through their stomachs, and he won't be manipulated that way either. He refuses to rule people through an alliance with evil, and he won't do that either. And he refuses to guard his rule to exalt himself through a corruption of God's promises. But isn't this how things get done in the world? In this world, it's the Herods and the Caesars and the Pilots and the Caiaphases who get things done, regardless of what it takes to do them. It says that the devil left for the next opportunity. Perhaps the next couple of opportunities he had with Jesus was when Jesus began to explain to his closest friends, his followers, that he would have to die and God would have to raise him up. As then, one of his best friends, kind of his deputy, Peter, comes to him and says, surely this isn't the case, Lord. God forbid this won't happen to you. To which Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. You are a stone that could make me stumble. For you're, thinking God, you're not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. And then maybe another temptation is in Gethsemane when Jesus accepts the cup of suffering that he'll have to receive on our behalf. He sweats blood to receive that. Do you see here how, how David is, is kind of a, a sketch for the full portrait? A very real sketch, a very real operation of God protecting his people, of God claiming victory. But Jesus is the full-blown fulfillment, the completion of this pattern set forth in David. You see the development here? Instead of picking up a sling and a stone to vanquish the giant, insurmountable, deathly foe, Jesus, in fact, takes death upon himself, thereby subverting death. You get that? Like That is cosmic jujitsu here that he would take death upon himself to kill death. That he would cut off the head of the serpent by emptying himself, by humbling himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In this, uh, this week since Orlando, I've, uh, I've felt that uh, some of what Alex talked about, that wordlessness and that, that um, in some way, numbness. I felt like I've had a little bit of my grief receptors blocked, right? Um, and, and like Lee mentioned, there, there's been this kind of backlash against our, our careless thoughts and prayers that then don't amount to any change whatsoever. But I really feel like in some sense, following Jesus in the wake of something like that, if we're going to be honest, and it, even if we're um, going to hold our, our leaders and politicians accountable and, and make sure they're honest, the only thing that they're going to have in the immediate aftermath of something so awful is prayers. It, like, there's no policy change that you can do a day after something like that. You can only sit in the valley of the shadow of death with it and cry out how long. And it's that sort of disarming ourselves following Jesus, that sort of 
disarming our want to go ahead and affect something and more often than not do more harm than good that's going to allow us to actually be changed, to actually grieve our way into something new. And, and, and that's not discounting policy changes. It's not discounting social changes that need to happen. But in the immediate aftermath, following Jesus, we need to empty ourselves. We need to be disarmed. Do you see then in Jesus, in this story, how we've received, in, in, in David's story, it's receiving a victory on behalf of all of God's people, on behalf of all Israel. In Jesus, though, it's receiving this once and for all victory. This victory that we vicariously receive through Jesus on our behalf, in our place. Even when we were cowering on the other side of a crevasse, or maybe we were stockpiling our own gear, our own technologies of violence to try to combat violence. I think that's the biggest thing about lament. Is you, it just pauses and de-escalates things long enough that we don't stockpile ourselves against the sort of stockpiling that we're raging against. We get to, to counter that, to fight against that, so that we might have life. That kind of Christ life. That life that's shaped like a cross. A life that can fight on its own terms, not the world's. That when we encounter pain and when we encounter suffering and when we encounter the evil that flows out of others' pain and suffering and sin, we don't return volley on that. We rest. We rest in the valley of the shadow of death. We rest at a table set right before our enemies. That there's rest in that. Not panic, not fear, but rest. We rest in the victory of King Jesus who has bound the strong man in Mark's gospel. Go, go back and read that. Bound the strong man and plundered his house, rendered him completely weak and ineffective. That strong man of death that makes us act crazy, makes us act out of fear and lack. That strong man has been defeated and now is, to some extent, a, a straw man, a, a, a snake with its head cut off that's writhing and flapping around but has no direction, has no power, but is just lurching and trying to, trying to grab something into its clutches. We work out of that assurance and out of that rest. We work with creativity. We, we work for justice. We work with confidence and trust in the Lord, God alone, who will deliver us from evil now and at the hours of our death. Will you pray with me? Father, we trust you. Our rock, our redeemer, our fortress, our stronghold. We trust you so that we don't have to fight, we don't have to 
fix. We don't have to solve. We don't have to, to, to be you. Let us rest in Christ's work for us. That seemingly insurmountable work of defeating death. Lord, let us, let us work out of that pattern that, that we might choose vulnerability and risk in walking with you over arming ourselves either for protection or for aggression. God, let us do that in the everyday stuff. When, when we argue with a spouse or a roommate, Lord, disarm us that we might rest in you. When we can't get along with a work colleague or a neighbor or acquaintance, Lord, disarm us. Let us rest in you and what you've done, what you're doing, what you've yet to complete. Pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.